welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we're going to be answering a bloody stupid Christmas special question. How do spooky Muppets guide Scrooge through transformative learning? Nice. I'm Mike Collins. I'm uh, a learning designer at the Open University, imposter syndrome incarnate, and a man with a microphone. And I am joined as ever by... I'm Mark Childs. I'm a senior learning designer at Durham University. And um, I was watching a Frankenstein movie yesterday, and I've got a new snappy tagline. Go on. So, okay. So it was from his warped brain to the smallest argumentative cell of his huge carcass, he's unearthly. That's a hell of a tagline. I love that. It sounds better than Basil Rathbone said it, but there we go. Oh, it's Christmas. It is. Oh, it's, 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 hopefully this is getting out before Christmas. It's so busy. Hello, fellow educators. Are you very busy as well? Okay, so um, what are the components of our question? Well, they are transformative learning and you've probably noticed the spooky Muppets bit in there. It's a Muppets Christmas Carol, the 1992 film by Brian Henson. Uh, so before we answer our question then, let's break down the components of it in the first part of the show. Part one, the question. Okay, so uh, Muppets Christmas Carol, 1992, by Brian Henson, not Jim Henson, like I thought, because I guess he was dead by then? He had just died. This is the first one after he died, so it's actually dedicated to him in, at the start of the movie. And it's also the first one that Disney produced. Really? Yeah. So oh, they didn't actually buy the Muppets for another 20 years or something, but they started getting involved in the production of them and the, and the um, distribution of them. With the Muppets Christmas Carol, probably my favourite Muppets movie. It's probably also, I think, it's also my favourite Christmas film. It's just so good. It's just so wonderful and perfect. It's definitely the best adaptation of Christmas Carol. I think the only problem is because Jim Hans- Henson was the voice of Kermit. They've got this is the first one with Stephen Whitmere as Kermit, and it's not the same voice at all. It really doesn't work. But luckily, Kermit isn't the the main character in this. The main characters are Michael Caine as Scrooge and. The Great Gonzo is Charles Dickens, and those are the two that really carry it. And Rizzo the Rat, of course. Oh, Rizzo the Rat, assistant. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rizzo's out there all the way through. But, you know, I mean, Gonzo is the best Muppet, so it just makes sense that, um, you know, it's the best movie because he's the star, basically. So for the the three people in the entire world who haven't seen Christmas Carol a hundred times, what's a, a quick synopsis of uh, of the plot? Um, so there's a Scrooge, Scrooge is <laughs> a Scrooge, that's where we get the name from. He's a, a miserly person who is visited by, first of all, his dead partner, ex, um, who is called Marley, who warns him three ghosts are going to arrive because where he's headed is no good. Because once he's dead, he'll be sort of weighed down by all the misdemeanors of his life. And then he's visited by these three ghosts. One of them's the ghost of Christmas present uh, past, which shows him how much he used to enjoy Christmas and how much it used to mean to him. And then the present one, which is showing different people having fun around London um, and enjoying the Christmas festivities. And then the future, where it's like, this is what happens once you're dead. And the only nobody will grieve. Some people will be quite happy because they won't have to pay you loans back. And uh, people will just nick everything from your dead body because nobody really gives a damn. And, and, and the ghost of Christmas Future as well is probably the single scariest Muppet that has oh, ever come out of Henson Studios. It's yeah. absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I mean, all the Muppets, I mean, this is why I like it particularly is it's a, a mashup. And there's something I love about mashups in that it's not uh, Stephen Whitmere playing um, Bob Cratchit. It's Stephen Whitmere playing Kermit playing Cratchit. So yes. you've got those, that kind of double edged layer of performance, which is really interesting as well. 
Yeah, the, the fourth wall is basically just like it's a revolving door for the entire movie. <laughs> well, uh, Charles Dickens, great Gonzo, uh, addresses the public directly and uh, addresses the audience directly. So, yeah, so it's he's the narrator. And there's questions about, well, how do you know what, what's going on when they're outside and, and there are ghosts inside? And he's saying, well, you know, I'm an omniscient, I'm a narrator and all that sort of stuff. So it kind of unpacks it all as well. Yeah, and I say that these three ghosts sort of transform Dick, uh, transform Scrooge, and so he becomes less. Is you know he gets he wakes up and he realizes it's the same night, not twelve nights later or whatever, and then fixes everything. And he's happy and he, he gives away his money and all that sort of thing. The thing is, is that the very first ghost who shows him his past and goes, "This is how much you loved Christmas when you were a youngster," he would go. He went. Oh, this is brilliant! What am I doing wrong? And so the, the middle one, the second one, and the third one are really just overselling the point. And he's done really within the first within the first few minutes of this sort of revelation in the book. I think in the in the movie, it takes a bit longer to get from. Yeah, I'd say definitely, it definitely takes a little bit more swaying. Mm, but I don't know what it is as well. Like it, it's very, it's quite sort of positive and upbeat until he goes to Ghost of Christmas Future, and then all of a sudden he's basically pissing his pants and begging for mercy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's. Uh, I think that's. Uh, you know, that's that's perhaps the thing that that he realizes that he wants to be able to change. So when you're showing him a fate accomplished, that things he's moved on from, or things that he's missing out on. And I mean, he if he really feels he's missing out at the time, he could be having all this fun and he's not. But it's the future and the fact that he could change the future and can he change the future? That's the thing that really brings it home to him. Um, so that's kind of that's uh, that's a Muppet's Christmas Carol in a nutshell. Yeah. Just, so Mark has deliberately not prepped uh, for transformative learning, so that for a change, I can be the one drawing back the veil on uh, on a piece of pedagogy for him. Despite the fact that I'm pretty sure Mark's going to know every single component of this, because there's not a lot here that's unfamiliar. Okay. But yeah, here it is in a nutshell. So uh, transformative learning theory. A fella called Jack Mesero, uh sort of, I'm not going to say discovered it, but just kind of pulled the bits together. And it's been sort of ticking along for decades now, I think, at this point. And there's some original articles and there's been some case studies and things since then. And people reference his work quite often. And very basically, it's the process of affecting change in a person's frame of reference. So it's an adult learning theory. Ha ha. Andragogy. Whatever. Yeah, well, we still haven't got around to giving that good kicking, have we? Yeah, I think we'll, we'll give that a good kicking event. Okay, it's off to a bad start then, I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> if he's used um, an andragogy. He is a bit of an arse. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't used that, but I just saw adult oh, okay. learning theory and I couldn't resist one. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of describes a method where people can use critical self-reflection to consider and challenge their own beliefs uh, in order to kind of gradually change their own thinking and worldviews over time. So sort of as a kind of a base layer to this, you've got the context. So you've got every learner or person has a body of experiences that they've accumulated throughout their life their objective experiences objective uh, knowledge of the world how they understand those experiences is through their frames of reference those sort of structures and assumptions in their thinking so that's kind of like the interpretive lens to the objective stuff Uh, so the frames of reference have kind of two dimensions that's your habits of mind and your points of view so it's kind of a mix of the cognitive stuff so you know however you you know your brain naturally leans um, and your emotional stuff, so kind of your emotional reactions to things. And there's a big thing in there about how much those are influenced just by upbringing. That seems to be kind of like a big thing is that that's, that's you know, but you're, you're bootstrapped up to your um, uh, your uh, your frames of reference. 
actually no bootstrap isn't the right phrase at all because bootstraps are something you pull yourself up by yeah yeah okay not bootstrap <laughs> you're plugged into your frames of reference these frames of reference then sort of selectively shape and limit and delimit your expectations and your perceptions it, what you, how you think and, and what your feelings are about these things and ultimately inform your behavioral courses of actions and kind of like you know your uh, i guess kind of conscious thinking they affect how we think about things and how we react to things and what we consider what we automatically dismiss what we trust what we don't trust um so that's kind of what we start with at the absolute base layer and then you have two ways of actually seeing transformative learning about that so there's instruction uh, sorry instrumental and communicative and i think this references jürgen habermas um, who sounds like a delicious chocolate bar. <laughs> I, have, I definitely have a, an octagonal Yerban Habermas with a honeycomb filling. So you've got your instrumental learning. So this is a way that you sort of, um, you transform, uh, that you're, uh, you're transforming this kind of this base layer. Instrumental is uh, challenging those assumptions and those kind of those frames of reference scientifically. So it's, you know, what can you prove? What can you disprove empirically? You know, um, for example, you could have a, a basic assumption that, um, I don't know, people who drive Fiat 500s are hairdressers, but you could, you know, you could, that, that is something you could actively challenge um, and, and test by, you know, surveying people or seeing what they put in the boot of its scissors or something. Terrible example. I should have thought of a better example before going to that. Well, uh, my dad always used to say that people that wore hats in their cars were worse drivers. So that would be an interesting one. He would actually deliberately avoid. He would back off or give them a wide berth if they're wearing a hat. That's a great. That's a great one. Oh, you see that? that there you go. That's that's a perfect <laughs> one. That's a perfect example of a uh, a sort of a frame of reference of a kind of which a is, which may be possible. I mean, there is a. He had a logical reason for this. It's because a normal sane person would take the hat off when they got in a car because you are not going to get your head cold. You're not going to get rained on. Why are you wearing a hat? So basically, his assumption was that anybody who wore a hat when they didn't need to was an arse and therefore would be a bad driver. So there's a logical be thing behind that. But, actually, but of course, you'd want to do a kind of objective test on looking at people wearing hats and not wearing hats by choice and then seeing how good a driver they were. Yeah, you absolutely would. I mean, I, I would definitely wear a hat in this weather because I'm bald and it's freezing out. And yeah, getting but into not my in the car because you'd have your heater on. Oh, I've not got. A, it's it's a ten year old car. It takes a little while for it. To, <laughs> okay, uh, my hands are already sticking to the steering wheel. It's right. Like, well, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not objectively tested. Uh, you know, he hasn't done any AB. He never did any AB testing on that. It was just an observation he made once that. I, I, and then I really you get like confirmation it. bias, and then of course you're stuck with it as a theory. Absolutely, and as you know, uh, for driving biases, that's probably the most harmless one I've heard so far. So I really <laughs> like it. Um, so you've got that's, that's your kind of instrumental learning. So that's your instrumental uh, tests for these things. So the other one is communicative learning, uh, and that is where you've got two or more people basically trying to understand one another's drivers, values, purposes, beliefs, and feelings about stuff. Then on top of this, and kind of mixed in with all this, is the sort of the transformative, the transformation of these frames of reference and understanding. You've got the big disruptive things. So big life events, uh, disruption, challenges, dilemmas, and you can see them in both the instrumental and communicative camps. Uh, but basically that all boils down to, and I'm going to thank uh, there's a website called Valamis, who summed this up really nicely in three points. So cheers for that, guys. I'll link in the show description. Three points are critical reflection, rational disclosure, and centrality of experience. So critical reflection, basically making your learners autonomous thinkers. So it's getting them into the space where they might, for example, look to do or consider the, uh, the instrumental 
their own sort of instrumental learning, their self-driven instrumental learning, or critically engage in communicative learning. And also to become like a self-reflective critical thinker. Rational uh, disclosure, so having rational and rational discussion around your thoughts and beliefs. So in that communicative space, actually having a a rational conversation about your your personal thoughts and and biases and beliefs and that sort of thing, which... um, is also, funnily enough, one of the criticisms of, um, of transformative learning as a, as a theory. And centrality of experience, so understanding what has brought a person to where they are today, which is something that you've, sort of, you've mentioned briefly with regards to Ebenezer Scrooge earlier in transformation. So it's how they have reacted and acted and what sort of brought them to where they are. And there's a really lovely uh, line here, which I've pulled out, which is, the adult educator must recognize both the learner's objectives and goal. The educator's responsibility is to help learners reach their objectives in such a way that they will function as more autonomous, socially responsible thinkers. So there's that whole kind of link into kind of critical pedagogy and critical thinking. And yeah, I think it's just really, really nice. I've also got, there's a kind of a, a steps that he went through later. So there's kind of like transformative learning phases that he uh, noted down while doing some research on uh, adult women uh, studying uh, at university. But yeah, before that, what's your what's your hot take, Mark, on uh, on transformative learning so far? Okay, um, a few. One of them is, you know, this applies to children as well. I used to teach nursery nurses to teach science, so one step removed. And they were talking about some of the problems they have when they're trying to explain, I don't know, friction or whatever, why the sky's blue or whatever, is that when you get kids to start with, and this is like the lies to children thing that we, we spoke about in another episode, there's already a massive amount of experience that they bring to the classroom that is wrong. You know, it's like, it's almost, and what a lot of uh, science teachers find with younger kids is that what the kids absorb is that, well, this is what's really happening, which is due to my own experience outside the classroom. And this is what I have to say in the classroom. So, you know, um, heat being transferred from one place to another rather than trying to keep the cold out you're trying to keep the heat in and there's no mm-hmm. such thing as cold it's the absence of heat and i don't know like you know like why the sky is blue well it's just blue but it's like well it's blue for a reason and explaining why it's blue in those sorts of ways and often that's just seen as being not something that's applicable to their daily you know to things like trying to explain relativity to um, a friend a few well a, a partner of a friend a few years back and I explained it, and she just didn't believe it because it wasn't part of her <laughs> general theory. I go, yeah, no. If you go the space, if you're in orbit around in a in a spaceship, you will actually age. Hang on, more quickly because you're further away from a from a um, from a gravity source, and gravity slowed down. A time slowed down by gravity. Refused to believe it. I'm going, but there's evidence. There's clocks. They send clocks up there, and the clocks are just not. Yeah, not not true. It's like so because it didn't match their own experience. Oh, but that's, that's a wonderful example, though, because that's where I mean that's one of the weaknesses that people have picked out with the theory is mm. that it it relies on it, or it relies on and assumes that you can always have rational discussion. Yeah. If you're if you present, it's all about uh, presenting people with kind of those dilemmas and things that challenge their own assumptions, and then critically engaging with it. So engaging with you in sort of discussion over it but also critically engaging with their own sort of schemas of understanding and we've seen that a lot this year with covid you know <laughs> um you know the, the people uh, particularly in the us but i mean i remember uh, reading something recently about the heartbreaking experience of having a patient dying of of coronavirus on a hospital bed in front of them still claiming that it was all a hoax you know and i like my electrician who came around saying well you know, I think it's all made up. It's like it's 
uh, it's just the flu. I'm going, but do you think people are still dying from it? So yeah, people are dying from it. And I'm saying, well, what kind of ridiculous hoax would that be? There's a disease out there that people are dying from, and you're not saying they're not dying from it, but you're saying it's flu instead of coronavirus. That's like making up, you know, it's like you're about to be hit by a stampeding herd of elephants. And it's like, oh, no, they're lying to us. They're Indian elephants. They're not African elephants. What the hell? <laughs> Why would you make that kind of <laughs> distinction? Who would make up something like that? So, so there is this whole thing about lack of rational discourse. And even if somebody will acknowledge that you're being rational and they're not, there's also this thing going back to our epistemology episode where people will actually validate a different epistemology that's not based on reason. They're going, oh, yeah, well, that's just the way a scientist would think. I'm going, yeah, but that's scientists think like that because that's how you determine the difference between reality and made up stuff. And mm. I go, well, I don't buy into that, you know, that, that ontology. And I go, well, you can't, you, yes, okay, you don't buy into it, but that doesn't stop it from being true. Mm. <laughs> and, and those are all different arguments that are really difficult to, to, to get. And it's, it has to come back. I think ultimately the, the foundation of it all is changing people's experience. That's, that's a huge thing in itself. I think the thing is, though, it's, it's, for me, the cool thing about this is that it really highlights how important it is to, because you say it's, it's all about giving people the experiences they need in order to, it's almost giving people the experiences they need in order to be able to change their thinking and to become an autonomous thinker. Mm. This, this whole sort of theme of making people their own critical autonomous thinkers is really, really big in it, really big in transformative learning. And how, you know, in my reading, you need to kind of get that in at the ground level. You need to teach people how to be thinkers before you can ask them to start challenging their own assumptions. Um, and that's something we historically do very, very poorly at schools. Like, you know, the formal education, it's, it's, it's learning by rote, which is um, uh, the opposite of critical thinking. It uh, stymies uh, critical thinking and critical reflection. Um, but, but this sort of really highlights how you need it and how you need to be able to examine your own thoughts, examine the thoughts of others, test things, to sort of test ideas and feelings and also, you know, test things physically. Well, you know, not in a weird way, but in like, you know, a numbers way. Um, in order to kind of continually adjust your thinking in order to be appropriate for the world that you're in, if that makes sense. But yeah, you need to teach I mean, yeah, it needs to be right at the start. You need to be teaching kids about ontology and epistemology and how you find things out and hmm. you know and or also you know this science religion divide is just gets in the way i mean we haven't spoken about faith schools at any of these but uh, i remember being taught about the scientific method and about evidence and about the role of evidence in working out what's real and what isn't and what you can know about the world and what you can't know and thinking well okay so that's the scientific method but then what about all this stuff about religion then and working it out on my own as an 11 year old walking home from school that actually all the religion stuff was made up, which it kind of is, but also that's not the point because also, you know, we don't, we, we have this side of either it's got to be true or it's not true. Well, yeah, if you're trying to make real decisions about the real world, about should you take COVID vaccine or not, you want to base that on real scientific so, evidence. So what you're saying is, is what they told you was true from a certain point, point of, of view. view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, yeah, it's it's true from the point of view, but also truth isn't everything either, and that's irrelevant because the, your your faith shouldn't be in, is for your faithy bits of your life, and then reality is for the reality bit, the real bits of your life, and and those are you know non overlapping magisteria to coin a phrase, and but we need to be teaching kids that as well, so that they're growing up in a in a realm where reason is something that is drawn upon when it's appropriate and they can tell when it's appropriate and when it's not. 
But we can't do that. We can't just go and go, oh, this is the way you're thinking is wrong. What we need to do is give them the experiences where we can say, you know, your grandmother died because she was she believed that she was covered in the blood of Jesus instead of getting a vaccine. That's what happened. You're sad now. Well, maybe you need to fix your – maybe everybody in your family needs to fix their lives so that they don't make those stupid decisions anymore. That would be an excellent example of a disorienting dilemma. So, for example, presenting an anti-vaxxer with a case of, you know, grandma was, I don't know, covered in pig's blood or something rather than uh, having been given a vaccine and now she's dead. So there's these 10 phases of transformative learning, which I'll really quickly run through, Okay. Um, which sort of Mesereau's postulated or observed. And it starts with a disorienting dilemma. So it, basically, a person's current meaning structure frame of reference doesn't match previous experience, which causes a disorienting dilemma. That's kind of like the your catalyst. It's like, okay, mm. a, two plus two does not equal four in this situation. What, what's going on? That should then prompt self-examination. So after the disorienting dilemma, they then self-test their beliefs and understandings and think about how past experiences connect to the current recent dilemma. Next up, you've got a critical assessment of their assumptions. So they then sort of look at their past assumptions and assess those, review them critically and sort of check the validity. Next up is the recognition that others have shared similar transformations. So I think this is definitely kind of getting into the communicative side of things at this point. Then it's exploration of new roles or actions, which I find is quite interesting because that's the, this is I think this is the, the the start of the transformation point. So the first I think the first few points are about recognize as sort of being made aware of a need to transform thinking, and then this point is kind of like a bit more active. Then it's development of a plan for action. So following a sort of transformative learning path, start to build confidence in your sort of your new belief and understanding. Then acquisition of knowledge and skills for implementing a plan. So we're kind of almost into problem based learning at this point. Then Oh, in fact, experiential learning, I should say, then trying out a plan. So it's where you carry your plan forward into sort of the, the full transformation, development of competence and self-confidence in your new role, and then reintegration into life on the basis of the new perspective. So a bit of experiential. And I don't I, I think he I think he bulked those out to 10 phases because 10 sounded like a better number than six. Yeah, and you know, they're they're kind of optimistic as well, I would say. Mm, yeah, I, this this is one of the criticisms I, I've read and kind of agree with is that it does really assume that people are like, Do you know, I, I think I'm wrong about that. Yeah. And yeah, Brexit is a terrible idea. And that admitting that you're wrong, that requires a humility that a lot of people don't have. You know, people talk about science being arrogant. Well, it's essentially it teaches you humility because you're checking well, if you're doing it right. And of course, some people don't really <laughs> go through this and they are some of the most arrogant people out there. But if you're doing it right, you're going into a hypothesis trying to find out whether or not, not to find out whether or not you're to prove your hypothesis correct, but to try and disprove it. And then if you fail to disprove it, you've failed to disprove, disprove the null hypothesis. Then you think, oh, I might have something here, but it's only ever might have something. And, you know, and it's constantly fixing itself. It doesn't do it very quickly because I think it's, it's on the kind of order of a generation before you get a paradigm shift. And that is often because. Because people are too arrogant, they won't change their minds. So it's like, well, I won't accept string theory because of this. And it's like, well, okay, so it's only when that generation have died off that maybe a new theory comes through. But it does a new one does come through because people are constantly challenging their assumptions. But that's not what people on the whole do. They tend to stick to them because of, you know, all these different because it's part of their tribal thing and because every all their mates are, or also because they gives them a nice buzzy feeling to think they're onto something that everybody's not. Oh, what's that wonderful Asimov quote? 
Ah, there we go. There is a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there always has been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is as good as your knowledge. Yeah. And I just, I feel that's been like turned up to 11 in the last 10 years. Yeah. Like in, um, in the Western world. Yeah. Oh, it's not just the US by any means. I mean, we've had the UK. I mean, uh, when Alan Johnson had recruited some experts to look at the use of the role of drugs within society, and they hadn't come up with a solution he wanted. So he just ignored the report. You know, and Labour aren't as bad. I mean, okay, they're atrocious and they're appalling. But, you know, the, the alternative is far, far worse. So what kind of choice do you have? You don't, you know, there's nobody really at the higher, you know, of the ruling classes who actually take notice of scientific reason. And the problem is, is that it runs endemically throughout, throughout society. So the fact that you've got homeopathy, you've got, you know, or you're having people saying, well, I won't buy that food because it's got chemicals in it. Food is chemicals. Food is amino acids and <laughs> carbohydrates and water. Water is a chemical. You absolute ass, you know. And yeah, this is this is what people actually will talk to each other about. We will have some number to you just watched a couple of video uh, YouTube videos and thinks he knows it because an argument is better than getting the truth across. And this, so they are really part of the problem. You know, Eamon Holmes going well as an inquiring mind. I want to ask questions about whether five G can cause coronavirus. Of course it can't. You utter utter cock. How do you even manage to find your way out of the house in the morning? You absolute numpty. And well, he's still got a job. Do you know what I mean? It's like insane. We're in this insane world. And so to come up with like, oh, transformative learning, when you're battered down, where your intellect is battered down by all these morons in the media and in politics who know that they're stupid and will just, who will just oppose reality because it's in their own vested interests to do so, what chance do you have, really? Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, we were going to talk about Muppets. <laughs> We've definitely highlighted a need for transformative learning, but also <laughs> yeah, simultaneously said that it's a little bit blue sky. Yeah, okay. Um, in 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 its kind of in its approach, yeah. but I think as a framework, mm. what bits stick out for you, and what do you think? What do you think of it in general? I think I think that thing about showing people that experience. There is a within the the people who are anti-rational and, and want to change, and what you might want to change their mindset. Then I think the people that have already. Yes, disruption. So we've seen all the people have been firmly opposed to online learning for 20 years or whatever. You know, we were trying to get people to start taking it seriously for at least that long. Um, and they haven't. And then they started having to do it because of the pandemic, disruptive experience, started to find that, yes, there were some things bad about it. But once they got to grips with it, and the students did, that it wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be. And actually, there were some things that were really good about it. But again, it's that disruption has changed their experience and they've been led and supported by people like you and me, Michael, um, to who know a lot about it, who can then say, well, these are the things you might want to look at. And, you know, with people that are conspiracy theorists, one of the reasons about how, one of the arguments, one of the discussions about how you might change their experiences is to get them to talk to somebody who's swapped over because they're all going, oh, you've drunk the Kool-Aid or whatever, or you, you've, you've swallowed the blue pill. Um, but what they don't realize is that, you know, yeah, I, I am all for taking the red pill, but I am in favor of making sure you can tell one color from another before you pick your right pill. And, mm. you know, and it's about informing them about how to tell the difference between red and blue before they do that. Um, so, yeah, and only people that have been through that path can do it. I think it's also about being sensitive to where pe why people are where they are, though, with that. So why they are a mad conspiracy theorist 
with I don't know feces smeared all over themselves. Yeah, that's yes. It's difficult though because if you get me going, I start to get into rant mode, and then you know, and I was reading somewhere that actually the appropriate response is ridicule, and there are some evidence, some papers that have been written to say that actually not engaging and dismissing those far-fetched opinions as as stupid as ridiculous is actually a response is because then you're not engaging and then they're just realizing they're being but but being pushed to the outside by but and being ignored the problem is of course is that there are so many people who are into this sort of stuff crystal healing or whatever the, they're not outsiders they're always going to have somebody who's backing up their particular opinion it has to be done but whether or not trans those and transformative learning is a nice idea but whether or not those stages will actually take people through that process I don't know. I, I I would be suspect that maybe they don't. I think I think the early stages for me mm. definitely definitely resonate. But should we look at maybe applying these okay. in the second part where we try and answer our question? Okay. How do spooky muppets guide Scrooge through transformative learning? Part two. The answer. Muppet Christmas Carol. We've got our spooky muppets and they're guiding Scrooge through his transformation from wicked old miser to generous giver of the biggest turkey in the shop window to the Cratchit family. What is his starting point? So his starting point of um, objective experience and frames of reference is that he's been brought up. He was, was he brought up on his own in a school where he didn't have Christmas? He didn't. His parents didn't collect him as a child, so he was left on his own, uh, which he didn't. He's convinced himself that he didn't mind because it meant that he could study more. His girlfriend left him. I don't know whether it, I, I get the impression it's a defense mechanism, but you can understand this as a defense mechanism. You know, like I want to be on my own because you have no choice because you are on your own. You know, mm. he's uh, and of course, um, 1840s in cell kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I'm trying to remember the the big blue bird who plays his school teacher, Sam. Um, Sam. Mm. Uh, yes, I'm just, there's one line that sticks out to me, which is. It is business. It is the American way. Gets something like uh, British, British. So this is the oh, British way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that kind of that um, sort of hyper capitalist upbringing has definitely mm. um, influenced his miserly, penny pinching, um, poor person, impoverishing approach yeah. to life. I would say. Yeah. Although Fozzywig, you know, showed that you could be a successful capitalist and have lots of fun. Ah, but he thought he was a fool because of it. Yes, in retrospect, but when he's shown that, well, okay, I'm, I might be mixing up the novella and the movie now, but um, when he's shown it, he goes, "Oh well, Fuzzy Wig was Fuzzy Wig was so much fun and all this sort of stuff, and what great days we had, kind of thing." But I don't think that emerged so much in the movie. I think, I think in the movie, he's more like, "Do you know how much this Christmas party cost?" <laughs> yeah, 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 and of course, Marley is part of that fun group as well, really, because that's where he and the Marley and all Marleys got together in the first place. Okay, so we've got a kind of a, a base, a, slight, a slightly wobbly basis mm. of sort of objective miserliness. I think there's probably slightly more of a question about character development. Well, it all is. I mean, this is what the thing, first stage of transformative learning is all about: is that you are, we are the sum of our experiences, and that's it. Mm. And so, if our experiences have guided us in one way, we have very little control over the environment that we're brought up in. No, well, it's not just as children, but the, we continue in. You know, um, so we have some, but you know it's it's not entirely down to us so that's what that's when we join him as he's um telling everybody they've got to work through christmas um and only have one bit of coal when he goes to bed yeah and then marley and marley 
because mm-hmm. I'm going by the map. Oh, yeah, no, we should. Marley, Marley. Come and give yeah. him his initial little his initial little fright. Yeah. Um, his first little bit of uh, challenging his assumptions. Uh, and there is uh, there's actually a lovely bit where he sort of convinces himself that um, it was probably just a bit of bad cheese or something. It's but, more of uh, gravy than of grave about you. Yes, that's a, which oh, is a terrible joke. Yeah, well, that's Dickensian. I mean, that was. I mean, this is the thing that's great about the movie is that obviously they've they've cut some things and moved things around and stuff. But you could not. I had just read the novella and then I watched the movie, and I could not tell which bits of the dialogue were original and which were created. The language is so well integrated with the new stuff and the old stuff that it it fits together. Apart from one or two uh, deliberate anachronisms, it 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 ties together really well. So yes, yeah, so and that's the point at which I don't think he's convinced I should be a better person because people want me to be a better person. It's more. If you don't fix your ways, when you die, you will be condemned to wander around with all these chains and uh, money, money boxes oh, hanging I see. around you. Think that's you. where the big transformation is. You see, that's not my interpretation from the Muppet version at all. No, there's no transformation emotionally like making him a better person. It's more about fear of the consequences at that point. Oh, so this is instrumental learning. Perfect at this point. Okay. So he is seeing a, this is a, a behavioristic. If I do this, then I end up in chains yeah uh, that's my, a my bad idea. yeah okay well i mean that's a that's a great place so he's having he's having his um uh mode of uh, behavior his schemas of thought challenged empirically at this point which is great um he's then thrown into another loop when the ghost of christmas past takes him back and it gets a bit more sort of sort of uh, i guess communicative at this point where he starts um leading him back to a time when you know when uh, he was younger and mm. Christmas was a bit nicer. Yeah, and fun, and confronting him with alternative ways of being that actually he had experienced already and had forgotten, so in in a way, or suppressed the memories of. So in effect, you're not introducing new experiences, you're just reawakening previous ones, and which kind of gives them more authenticity because you're saying, well, this is where you were 40 years ago, so what what have you lost? And you might mm. think, well, okay, because I was a kid then, and that's just a ridiculous thing. But if you can remember some of the good times as well, and that you could still have those, then that might be tr- transformative in in its own way as well. Absolutely. And then there's the I'd say the ghost of Christmas present, where it's looking at you know how his how his current actions are impacting on the people around him is very much an examination of his existing behaviour patterns and beliefs. And the consequences, not and and sort of and how they um, percolate outwards from him. Well, yeah, I mean, the first bit is he's shown his nephew and his niece by marriage having fun, and he joins in. He gets caught up with the frivolity, and he's joining in the games and all those sorts of things. They're playing um, twenty questions, and he um, he's then upset when they realise that it's all about him, and they see him as this outsider kind of person. But up until that point, he's actually having fun because he's joining mm. in. And so then it's, it's saying, well, you know, you're all al- you're really pointing out these are alternative experiences you could be having. And look at them when you're actually standing as a ghost watching this. How much fun is it? Yeah, you're having fun and you're getting involved in this. This is why it doesn't feel quite so that the whole veneer of him being a miser and being an outsider seems to be a pretty... Pretty pretty superficial one, because as soon as he is shown, this is how much fun you can be having. He's there. He's going, oh, yeah, I should be doing this. Like, you know, he's constantly, you've transformed that person by giving them these one or two experiences and then keep on with more and more of them. 
Um, uh, so course, it's very handy, very sort of heavy-handed uh, transformative learning. Uh, or, is it, or is it scaffolded? Ooh. It's scaffolded. Well, it's it's reiterated, I think, and it's but it, it's 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 he's he's ready to go. It feels like he's ready to to to, to be transformed before they even stop. Once once Marley's had had his go. But with the rest of it, it's like as soon as you start showing him these alternatives, he's there, and it's just an untapped, untapped potential. Which is why, you know, maybe this is why transform- transformational learning works is with the people who are the low hanging fruit, and it, you know, and he is definitely low hanging fruit there as far as a transformation is concerned. Because of course, then when you go onto the Cratchits and things, he said there's um, some uh, it's Hunts and Bunnydew. And Beaker come round asking for oh, some yes, money for the, for the charities. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, um, well, you know, they'll get die. And he goes, well, it's good riddance to them. They'll help decrease the surface population. And so then, when Tiny Tim is about to, when they go, what happens to Tiny Tim? Because he's all coughing and all that. He goes, oh well, he'll he'll die. And of course, um, once he sees it, Scrooge is completely devastated by this Tiny Tim dying. And then goes to Christmas presents, says, oh, well, what's the matter? It'll help decrease the surplus population. And so echoing his own words, all that needs to be done was to show him the reality outside of his door. He's talking about all these people dying and good riddance to them because they're not being productive and they could be in workhouses or whatever. But he's not seeing them. And all it takes is for him to see them. And it's working. Uh, so maybe this is why this is actually the Muppets doing a wonderful piece of instructional design. Because you're right, I think any of these things as isolated sort of instructional learning events hmm. might not take. So, you know, when the Marleys first appear, oh, you do this, you'll appear in chains. And he's quite sceptical then, you know, there's more of gravy than of grave of you. Hmm. He's quite sceptical then. And he can quite clearly see how, sort of, you know, the little bits of misery he's doling out on an individual basis in sort of the, uh, the the preceding section before he even sees the ghost. Like, you know, you've got the, the person who's behind on their mortgage payments. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'll evict you. Bah. But I think having basically just bombarding him with these big disruptive challenges to his kind of his core beliefs and core manners of behavior in that yeah. sequence, I think is what makes it take. I think it's, it's if, if you were to do this as like any other piece of teaching, you wouldn't just go like, okay, we're going to show the person how to be a critical thinker once and it's done. No, you build yeah. it up, you scaffold it. Yes, and reiterate you're, it. Yeah, you give them opportunities to yeah. demonstrate it, which he does at the end. Yeah, I mean, he's done and he doesn't want to see anymore and they keep on showing him more and he says this constantly. It's like, I don't want to see anymore. And he goes, oh, there's one more. Um, yeah, and they, I get the impression they're more, they're, they're not so much core principles as rote principles. And maybe that's another thing is that you can, it depends how ingrained these things are as behavior. And if they are just rote behavior, like, I don't know, it's like, oh, well, we're getting into neuro-linguistic programming now and things like that, where, you know, supposedly you can train your brain to stop yourself smoking or chewing your nails or whatever. And so maybe there's something about how ingrained those are as behaviors, because they do definitely feel like they're, with Dickens, they're, with Dickens, with Scrooge, they're just rote behaviors that he's got into the habit of thinking. Mm. And as soon as you jolt him out of that in some way, then he is he mends his ways. The other thing as well is that going back to the difference between seeing an image, reading about it, and experiencing it, and this ties in with the chimes, the sequel a bit as well, is that actually reading about it and seeing it and it being there are very different things. And it's a kind of immersive learning as well. And maybe there are some things I've read about immersive learning. So sticking on a VR headset and being there is more transformational than simply reading about it because it's 
you're in there, it's wraparound, it's 360 degrees, and it's haptics and all those sorts of things. More immersed than he does simply by reading it in a newspaper, and it brings it home to him in a way the newspaper didn't. And so maybe there's something there about transformation as well, that you have to live it to some extent, even virtually, rather than just read about it or see it on the TV. Yeah. The key, the key word for me is challenge, which just crops up so much in it, and it's, it's all about challenging people. And I think, yeah, you're right. It's easy to go, oh, yeah, I'm very challenged by this question that some mm. this, this difficult question somebody's written in text in front of me. That's very challenging me. But actually dumping somebody in, in the situation yeah. is going to be infinitely more challenging on, on an emotional level as much as anything. Well, and that's, yeah. As we're, as we're trying to affect an emotional transformation as much as anything, that's as important. Well, I think that's where we came, where when the discussion came in, wasn't it? It's about that experiencing it. And having that emotional connection, we, you know, you build up these particular positions because you have you you have a whole series of emotional reasons. You know, the reason why you believe in equality is possibly because of an emotional reason at some point about it. The reason why you might believe in white supremacy is an emotional reason at some point. Because and so, therefore, if you want to make that transformation to make somebody better, more critically reflective, you have to create another emotional situation where people then will feel connected. And we see this with immersive learning as well, is that you are more immersed, and it's not just about the headset, it's about having an experience that's emotional makes you more immersed, but being immersed makes it feel more emotional as well. So, you know, you've got that kind of cycle, that sort of vicious circle there, which enables these sorts of maybe transformations to happen. But just reading about it in a book and go, yeah, it's easy to dismiss then. Okay, so back to our question of, how do spooky muppets guide Scrooge through transformative learning? Okay. Do we think? Do you reckon you could answer that in okay. sixty words or less? Okay. He they do it by immersing Scrooge in experiences that have an emotional resonance with him, and so therefore challenge the learning that's acquired up to that point, because that is also emotionally acquired. And that's the way you can bring about transformational learning. You might then lead people to be more rational, but you can't do it by reason because you cannot reason with an irrational person. What you have to do is create an emotional response in an emotional person that leaves them open to reconsidering their position. And then that lets reason in. Bravo. How about that? That's superb. Well done. <laughs> we got there in the end. Yes, that was glorious. Okay, so uh, I'll just take us into part three then, okay. where we'll go into any practical tips for your own teaching. Okay. Part three, practical tips for your own teaching. Okay, so uh, what are our practical tips for own teaching? Um, might, have I, might have I go first? Yeah, okay. Um, I just, I, 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 for me, it's the importance of critical thinking, critical, independent, autonomous thinking. And how, if you can make somebody their own transformative learner through life, if you can give people the tools they need in order to be able to examine their own thinking and change it, you know, as, as needs be, then they're going to, it feels, I'm not sure if they can have a better time at life at all, but I think they will be a better person overall. We will have a better time trying to deal with them. Yeah, I think, I think, every, I think everybody has a better time when more people are kind of uh, well people critical, are more like, critical, self-reflective uh, the people are going to live as well you know we've have in the us alone a third of a million people dead simply because there were no rational thinkers in government you know it's comes it's that's it's that essential you, you know without reason we die basically yeah, without reason we brexit uh, <laughs> yeah and how many deaths is that going to bring about through poverty 
we oh don't know God, yet. Many, of course, that's going to be there as well. And then I, I poverty, in combination with COVID, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. And again, in purely because people had an emotional response rather than a reasoned one. My, my top, okay, my top tip is, yes, I agree, absolutely, that's where we need to get to, critical thinking, critical reflection, better people. But we get there as educators because so few, if, you, if somebody isn't one of those already, the way we get to them is by providing our learners with emotional experiences. So that's experiential learning and experiential learning moments that have a resonance with them. And we can do that. Maybe we can do that, on, we can do that online, obviously, probably easier than we can in, uh, in person. Yeah, because the problem with uh, physical rooms is that they cannot be transformed in the same to give you different experiences in the same way that a virtual room can be. So through some sort of immersive experience, particularly with VR, then maybe we've got some sort of emotional experiences that can resonate with people and make them challenge their assumptions. And Mark's book, Virtual Worlds: Experiential Learning, is available at all good uh, <laughs> all good booksellers. Did I get the title right? Uh, I, oh, yes, experiential I, I learning. Don't think it's world. available at any good books set booksellers, but you can get it online at some of the shittier ones, as some of the more exploitative <laughs> ones, and directly from the publishers. But yeah, there's a few of them on this sort of stuff. Uh, and I'll throw in one more point actually, okay. which is we've um, we've slated um, your anti-vaxxers and uh, conspiracy theorists and holistic medicine users. Um, I'm not sure if we actually slated the last ones, but we haven't probably should have. I did. Um, oh, good. Oh, guys, I wouldn't yeah. want them to be left out of the people who need a good slating. But I think a, an important part of this as well is just that understanding that grounding context of where people are and how they got there. So it's you know, oh, look at the oh, look at the fancy vaxxers over there and they're flinging their feces at one another. <laughs> but you know, actually understanding what has brought them to that point can in turn allow you to start building those transformative learning experiences which are more tailored to them and more likely to actually be effective with them. Yeah, because ultimately, although I do tend to rant, I, if that's counterproductive, then that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but it might be. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, ultimately, it's about, it's yeah, it's you, you do whatever you do to get to the result that you need to, really. And if that's talking to them and engaging with them and um, listening to them and then validating them in, initially to then bring them around, then I suppose... You grit your teeth and you do it rather than <laughs> but I, I that's a better person than I am can do that for doing that thing. <laughs> well, that's what Christmas is all about. Yeah. Oh, it is Christmas, isn't it? Yeah. Happy Christmas, listeners. <laughs> the world will be a better place. <laughs> God bless us everyone. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on all of your favourite platforms or at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter. Uh, I'm at Pedagodzilla. Oh, and I'm at Mark Childs. Yeah. Uh, we hope you have a lovely Merry Christmas and a good break. Um, well, if you do, if, <laughs> hope you have a good break and get to celebrate whatever you want to celebrate. I'll get you out. Cool. Uh, we love you lots and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye-bye now. Bye.